Welcome to Too Deep, Hokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthod, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. We are recording on August 1st, 2016, and we're getting ready for the season. We're only got about a month to go, and we're excited because Robbie reached out and got us a new guest, and I have to thank him for that. Uh, before we get started, Robbie, could you give us a cheers and a little insight on who we'll be talking to? Yeah, so um, I think we today we're going to have Braden Gall on uh, from Athlon Sports. He'll give a little bit more, and we'll give a little bit more on his uh, background to to fill everybody in. Uh, for uh, cheers, uh, let's let's hand it to to Braden. We've had uh, success a couple times now getting some um, you know pretty big football, college football names uh, on, and uh, Braden was nice enough to to reach back out, responded right away when we hit him up um, that he would come on the show. So. Uh, let's give a cheers to him. Really excited to have this conversation and, and see what he has to say about the Hokies and just football in general. Awesome. Cheers to that. All right, so now we're welcoming in Braden Gall. He's been a contributor to Athlon Sports since 2007. He's host of the Athlon Sports Cover 2 podcast, and he's also a host on College Sports Nation on Sirius XM. Braden, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Good to be here. Well, uh, Braden, we'll uh, we'll kick things off uh, here uh, at a little bit of a kind of big picture. Um, you know, really excited to get your insight uh, from a national perspective on the the Hokies this year, and maybe some football just in general. Um, and at a high level, when you guys are putting together your preview magazine, it's got to be a huge undertaking. You know, taking you know many many months to put together with 128 teams, uh, endless option. How do you guys kind of manage the locker room and creation of the preview? Is it a democratic system you kind of vote on the rankings screaming and yelling around the table or how do you guys uh how do you guys manage that uh, a little bit of everything um there there are it's fairly democratic and occasionally some screaming and yelling and then occasionally the dictatorship takes over and, uh but that's pretty rare it's, it's pretty democratic rich light is the has been the boss and kind of figurehead of the magazine for almost 15 years and has has been my boss for 10 and is you know does does awesome work so he he manages it he sort of has kind of the final say tie-breaking vote maybe a little extra on his vote but uh he's 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 very trustworthy with his people and there's about five or six of us in the room and um are making every single prediction but that's the last very last part of our as you mentioned five six seven month long process that really starts in december with teams not making bowl games you start to call stats and, and pull depth charts and build schedules and all this stuff, and, and you know, we we, re, we rewrite the magazine, novel concept. We rewrite the magazine every year, and we have writers from every single team covering, uh, especially in the Power Fives. We we have someone who's there at practice, covering the team every day. That that is essentially get writing our story. So we make all the national decisions at the very end of the process after we've talked to coaches, read every team story, and gone through all the statistical data from Bill Conley and and all that stuff, and at the very end, we sit down and hash it out over a couple of weeks, and, and yes, there are lots of flying staplers occasionally and, and some office <laughs> items that, that end up in the wall, but, you know, for the most part, and we've had a really tough call in the ATC this year, for example, with, with Florida State clubs, and obviously no stranger to the, to the Hokies, and that's about as difficult a decision. Ten years out of the company, I think Florida State Clemson this year might have been our, our toughest decision we've ever had to make, so... We, we put it to a vote, and then at the end, there, a decision has to be made, and Mitch kind of gets final say on that stuff, but he's pretty good about trusting us to, to get our study on. 
that's pretty fascinating, and I can only imagine because uh, I'm pretty split on Florida State and Clemson as well. Uh, I'm sure that, among many other decisions, is, is a tough job. Yeah, and and what I love about kind of that process, what I've really fallen in love with, is there's we have so much information now at our fingertips. Maybe ten, fifteen years ago, uh, covering college football would not have been done the same way. I mean, we. We have, you know, I go through every year and have a spreadsheet where I have rosters ranked based on entirely on recruiting rankings over a five to six year window, so we can see exactly where every team is recruited. We've, we've got anal- higher level analytics stuff from the sports nerd side of things, like I said, from Connolly, crossover schedules, depth charts, history. I mean, ev- everything goes into these decisions. We have so much information now that we we hope we're still making the, the best decision, but you know, with, with with technology and recruiting, and especially recruiting and the changes that industry has made over the last five to ten years, it's really changed the way we make predictions, and we have so much more information now. Now, that's that's pretty incredible process, and it, it must be, you know, as much as it is work on a day-to-day basis, a, a blast to go through all of that, um, digest it, and then see the output, which is the, the magazine that uh, Pete and I both have, you know, in front of us. So it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing process to hear about on, um, you know, your commentary on the, on both the podcast, um, and Sirius XM, we're both big fans of, of, of both. It sounds like you're, you know, a little bit high on the Hokies or at least higher than maybe some of your colleagues at this point. Uh, you were kind of, you know, the first one on board. It sounds like Mitch and some of the other, uh, the other people after they look <laughs> into the schedule are starting to, to come around a little bit. Um, but you know, for us, you know, it's a, it's a tough situation for the Hokies in particular, um, just given, you know, Fuente's first year, a different scheme, the QB battle between Evans and Motley. There's not been a lot of information. They had closed uh, practices. It's tough to figure out what's really happening there. How do you how do you guys handle a situation like that? And, you know, what, what drives a, at least a little bit of optimism for the Hokies this year for you? Well, and I think all those questions you just mentioned, all the little things that we don't know about, because, you know, every new coach, we, we know what Mark Rick is. We sort of know what Kirby Smart is. We know what Bronco Mendenhall is. We know what Dino Babers is. All these new coaches, we know what they are, but until you see it happen at the new location, you still have a, a sort of a question mark there. And so while we we love everything about kind of the, the, the file on Virginia Tech, if you want to call it that, especially the schedule file, I love the offensive playmaker file. You know, like different parts of every team, their strengths and weaknesses when we evaluate it. But a, a, probably a big part of why they were sitting at 29 in our preseason rankings and outside of the top 25 and, and not ahead of North Carolina, let's say, is, is some of those unknowns. And those are still the case. We, we still we still have those in place until game one, game two, and really probably game two. Uh, you won't find out a whole lot about what each quarterback, either of the quarterbacks, is made of and, and the offense and the scheme until they go up against Tennessee, which will be a, 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 just a bizarre setting in general. It would be great. It would be awesome. But it would be very strange. So even then you may not have a great, perfect idea and picture of what each one of those quarterbacks brings to the table, whoever it is. It's just, so that's part of why they maybe started lower in our rankings. But our our rankings every year are, are sort of malleable, and they we get to the end of the season and end of the summer, excuse me, and by the time we're, we've had three weeks of camp to digest all across the country, we almost all of us make some tweaks and changes to our picks and our rankings. It's the magazine is kind of a snapshot at that point, and we've got to do our best to try to prepare people and give them good information. But we don't. By the end of the you know August of camp, there's a lot of things that happen, and 
Virginia Tech is one of those teams that as the summer has gone along, I've started to see more and more than I like. You read more and more than you like. Uh, there's still a question mark quarterback, but um, it, the schedule for me is the biggest factor, and I, that's just continuing to, uh, as you look back at the history of the game, Iowa, Northwestern, Wisconsin built huge schedules last year by not playing the big three in the other division. North Carolina did it last year in ACC. So uh, it's a huge factor, and I just believe in Fuente. I love the defense. I love the skill players. There's a lot to like there. Yeah, it's definitely a difficult task when you don't know who the starting quarterback will be. And, and in Gerard Evans' case, you've never even seen him play. So I guess at the, you had Motley's play last year to go off as potentially a floor for what the Hokies would get at quarterback right, play. Right. But it, it's got to be nearly impossible when you've never even seen tape on the quarterback. No, it, it is. And just, again, if you're just going to kind of from 10,000 feet away as we are, you know, looking down, like, you didn't see a lot out of Motley last year that made you feel like he had the ability to become a, a, a star in the ACC. Now, he's very, very early in his career, obviously. So um, it's easy to understand why that's the case. At least in his, uh, in his playing career with the, with the experience. Right. And and I don't know how fast that's, you know, if you're given that amount of time to develop, I don't think, you know, if you're a freshman and you're doing that, that makes sense. Uh, but I didn't see a whole lot last year that told me that, that this, this guy is going to be incredibly difficult to beat out or, or whatever. And then you, and you start to, again, like I said, common sense 10,000 feet away is you got a guy who was recruited specifically to replace Paxton Lynch was was the heir apparent in Justin Fuente's system, and now he's going. Now he's still going to. He's going to follow the coach. I, I can't imagine you make that move if you're if you don't feel pretty comfortable uh, about him being your starting quarterback. So it seems pretty common sense. And if he's as he's as explosive as people think he is athletically, and in, in all the things that you read, then then the supporting. What I love about Virginia Tech, talking to other coaches, especially, is, is and I've talked to a couple of defensive coordinators that that will face Virginia Tech. And they talk about the same kids that we all talk about that don't get a lot of love, and that's guys like the Sam Rogers kid who's just an awesome football player. They have great pieces at every other position. Offensive line, maybe some questions, but if Evans is any good at all, that offense should click all season long, and, and that's a good sign for Virginia Tech. And, and I trust in Fuente to make that happen. Yeah, Sam Sam Rogers is a, a big favorite um, amongst the teams being a walk on. So we everybody loves him and, and what he's done on the field and every he's earned every every uh, moment that he's on that field. So it's I'm, pretty impressive. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you, defensive coordinators are like that's the guy we have to plan around. I mean, it's it's really interesting. Oklahoma had a guy named Trey Miller who was uh, an All Big Twelve player and had like three carries a game and like two catches a game, but but he just did everything. He he could run the ball. He could block. Catch. He did. He could do everything. He'd play special teams if you need him to, and, and make tackles. And uh, when coaches are talking about fullbacks, that kind of perks you up a little bit. And they're going, "Man, that 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 dude's a football player." And I I love watching him play. So it's all of them. I mean, the receivers, the running backs, the tight ends. I mean, the whole the whole offense is there in place. It makes a lot of sense for, and that's why we like the fit with Fuente and, and all those weapons. Yeah. So transitioning a bit, you are a Tennessee grad, we understand, um, and we, we obviously that second game of the year you you, you alluded to and read our minds with Battle Bristol. A um, lot of excitement, uh, anticipation of both programs. Uh, what's I guess what's your take on the game? I guess first in general, um, it's been in process for a long time to make this happen. Um, you know, probably halfway through uh, you know Beamer's Beamer's career, they started talking about it, which uh, you know twenty nine 
nine years. And then, you know, uh, in addition, the setup and how you think it'll play out in the actual game um, with uh, with UT and, and Virginia Tech. Well, as, as a, a guy who took a, an official visit to, to Blacksburg and had uh, both of these schools sort of as, as, you know, finalists or favorites or whatever, whatever you want to call it, there's a couple other schools that are involved, but Virginia Tech was one of the finalists when I went to school. And um, they're they always, you know, I've had a lot of family in the, in the state and have spent a lot of time, in, in, you know, up on the parkway and in that area of the country. So it was always pretty meaningful to me to see those two. It just made too much sense um, with two great programs to be sort of in perfect geographic location to a place that was capable of doing something like this now. Is it going to be very strange, very weird? Are there going to be a lot of unhappy fans at the stadium because they couldn't see anything? I have a feeling that could be possible, and I have a feeling both teams could play very tight and, and react very you know, strangely and differently, and I think anything could happen. So I don't think it'll – nothing about it will feel like a normal football game uh, until they start hitting a little bit, and then maybe they fall into a rhythm, in which case I, I think Tennessee could play tight. I think Virginia Tech could play very well keep the score close. Uh, you you got to lean Tennessee from a talent perspective. They're, 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 they're sort of uh, cut above the Hokies, but at, at the same time, that's why that's why you put 11 guys on the field. And in that strange, weird situation, I would not be shocked to see Justin Fuente to come up with something uh, to make some plays. But that'll, that'll be low scoring. Uh, Tennessee's defense is legit, and you're going to have to stop their running game if you expect to win. So there, there's some real challenges there. Uh, and I think the hype for Tennessee is, is legit. I think they belong in the top ten. Uh, they're that talented, and they're that complete of a team. So I think it'll be a great game, great setting, great for the sport, great for both programs. Uh, I just hope it I hope it settles in and feels more like a real game so we can really truly find out more about these two teams because I have a feeling there'll be a lot more that we talk about with this game than the actual play on the field, which, you know, that could be a bad thing. Uh, just, you know, if it affects the way kids play, that's the only negative. Otherwise, it's an awesome, awesome event, an awesome idea. Um, sad to not see Beamer be a part of the, the largest crowd in football history, but what a way to start a tenure for a new coach. I mean, that, that's that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, and I guess I'd say about Fuente, in an equally big spot in that Memphis Old Miss game last year, he certainly had his team ready to play. Uh, so hopefully he can mimic some of that against Tennessee uh, we are both going to the game and are extremely excited about it so we'll have to see I'll how see that checks out <laughs> maybe so we'll have a we beer be- for you ready at the tailgate yeah, we, both- hey, we don't <laughs> have a problem with that in this state we don't have a problem with that and we both realize that that we're not going to be able to see anything from the uh, the stadium. I think most fans have come to grips with with that phase of it and are are going yeah. there for the atmosphere more than anything else almost well, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a race. I've been to the night race there um, when I was in college, and I mean it's it's a spectacular, you know, venue and location. Uh, make make sure you set up on on exit on uh, entrance ramps to the interstate. That, that you know, when you go to the night race, they turn all the interstates around, and you can park anywhere you want. The key is parking on an entrance ramp to an interstate. You get you get your setup, <laughs> get your tent going, you get your grill going, you get it all, you get all your food and your drink set up, but you want to be able to throw it all into the car and right up the ramp onto the interstate right away. There's going to be a lot of people getting out of town. I'm sure there will be. Uh, you mentioned the schedule earlier, and while you feel like it's probably a strength for Tech and as far as having a good record, there's some tough games out there for Fuente in 2016. 
We obviously just talked about Bristol. We have to go to Notre Dame, uh, UNC at Chapel Hill, which is going to have big implications on the Coastal, Pitt at Heinz Field, where we've never won, and then a big game against Miami on Thursday night at home. And last time that happened, we did not show up at all. There's a good chance BT will be a dog in all those games I just mentioned. And Robbie and I, when we were going through our schedules in our last podcast, we both gave the Hokies about a 1-4 record over those five games. Do you see any of those matchups being slightly more favorable, uh, where we'll more likely to get a win? And um, what would you say would be a good or a bad year for Fuente record-wise in 2016? Well, I, I think the only two teams that you can look at and point to and say those two teams have significantly better players than us. They are a more talented team. They've recruited at a, at a legitimately higher level. Now, I don't mean like 22nd in the nation versus 29th in the nation. That's about the same. Tennessee and Notre Dame have recruited at a different level than most people in college football. And the good news about those two games, of course, is that they don't have anything to do with getting to the championship. So if you go ahead and put, put those two losses off the schedule and you kind of say, all right, house money at that point, it really does come down to, like you said, at North Carolina, Miami, and the Pitt and Duke, I mean, listen, Georgia Tech's always tough. Duke's going to be Duke. They're going to be a well-coached team that's going to play the game the right way, but they're not going to really do anything extremely well. Uh, and then, you know, Virginia, you think, is going to be a more physical team this year, better on defense with Bronco. So it, all, all the games in the conference are, are interesting, but it really, to me, it's at North Carolina and Miami. And what are the two things that, that those two teams have in common? They don't play any defense. So I think Miami could be better but they don't have depth yet, and, and Chizik is really, really good, but they've got to really take big strides to be good on defense, and that gives Justin Fuente opportunity. So if you can pull an upset and you got a high-scoring game, which is the way North Carolina wants to play, you can win because you've got a coach who, who's fantastic on offense, and oh, by the way, you still got that foster guy on defense. So I, I think that, that the team and the coaching and the schedule and the, and the competition sets up very well. That's why the Pitt game, like you're talking about, is a scary one because of how how Pitt is constructed. They're, they're going to play good defense. They're going to slow the game down. They're going to you're going to play their style where they want the game to be played. And that's one of those games where you're right. You're going to need to watch out because that style is, is dangerous. And I, I really like Pitt. I just don't think they're talented enough uh, to really compete for the division. But I think Pitt's a that's a really good you know seven to five eight four type of team. Uh, people forget they were six and two last year, and so to finish up, I guess in a roundabout way, I, I think in the division, in the conference, Virginia Tech's capable of six, seven, eight wins. I, I don't think that's out of the question, um, but I, it, you know, I, I recognize they're probably going to drop a game or two if you add in the out of conference games. I mean, I, I, I think nine and three is very attainable, uh, and I think seven and one gets you into the title game. So uh, it just depends on which one that one is, and if you can go six and two, you know that. Six and two and five and three has won that division a lot in the past. So uh, you can have a couple of mistakes because almost everybody seems to make mistakes. North Carolina last year was sort of the exception, not the rule. Yeah, and uh, I I've had and I think Pete's had that Thursday night game at home, which you know Virginia Tech. Uh, you know, one thing that we've always loved is our Thursday night games at home, and you know that was something oh, yeah. we linked up with ESPN a, a long time ago, and and made that um, you know bigger than may it have been before. Uh, that Miami game, I think, is going to get a lot of a lot of viewership just because two brand new coaches um, on a Thursday night at home in Blacksburg. Uh, I'm juiced up about that one. I was at the Miami game two years ago when with my wife and we fell on our face. So hopefully it's a better result. And, and, the, and the foliage and the foliage will be great that time of year in that part of the country. It's wonderful in October. 
Yeah, that was the only good thing about the last time we played Miami at home on Thursday night was the drive down to Blacksburg. <laughs> the drive back was not good. Yep, yep. Uh, so recently the ACC has been talking about going to a nine-game schedule. And there's some mixed feelings. On one side, you have an odd number of games, and you'll have five away games every other year. On the other side, you increase your strength of schedule and play the entire Atlantic more often. I mean, right now we don't even have a game against Louisville on the schedule period going forward at home. Players could go their whole career without playing some of the big names from the other division. What are your thoughts on the nine-game conference schedule? Is it a good thing for the ACC or a bad thing, or is it just necessary in this playoff era? I, I think that last way to describe it is maybe the best. I, I don't. I think coaches will tell you it depends on where you coach, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, if you if you coach at Duke, you probably want eight games. If you coach at Wake Forest, you want eight games. If you coach at Syracuse, you want eight games. If you coach at Florida State, you probably don't care. If you coach at Clemson, you probably don't care, and you you, you probably want nine games because it gives you a better shot at getting into the playoffs or, or you know big money dollar game or added inventory for television revenue, whatever it could be. So it sort of depends on where you coach. Uh, from the coaching standpoint, but I think it's the direction that the sport is headed. Uh, we are scheduling tougher. I think that's good for the sport. I think the neutral field games are going to continue to grow and be a huge part of the first couple of weekends of the season every year. Uh, that's not going anywhere. In fact, it could continue to grow. Um, so I think tougher schedules equals better football games, and that that's good for me. That's all. I, I, I'm not. I'm not going to lose or make money, you know, <laughs> losing a $3 million <laughs> coaching job because we didn't make it to a bowl game. So for me, better football games is, is makes for a better product, makes for a better sport. And if it leads to a truer picture of the national landscape, and we've got a truer picture of every team, and we're making better decisions on who to put into the playoff or better automatic bids or, or at-large bids or whatever the future is, the, the clearer the picture and the better the product, why, those are both great things. So... Um, while coaches probably don't like to hear it, it, it makes their life a little tougher. I think it's the new norm, and there's a lot of coaches that, that see 10 games coming in, in conference schedules with, uh, with an automatic power five out of conference or, or what have you. So I, I think we're only trending, we're going to continue to trend in that direction, and I'm not sure what the end is. Uh, no FCS, maybe no mid-major. Maybe, I mean, you're always going to have a couple of group of five games on there, but we could get to the point where we're playing – Ten conference games, one Power Five, and one you know one other FCS team, um, and I think that's the trend we're we're headed in for all the major conferences. Yeah, so uh, I think Pete would love to get ECU off our schedule as soon as possible. <laughs> He's uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. that's that's a thorn in our side. But I, you know, it's it's funny hearing a lot of the national commentary about it, and it's you know who's making the schedule. You know how are you know how are teams getting kind of you know. Not having you know the toughest schedule because they're getting easy um, cross conference uh, you know opponents. For me personally, it's frustrating. Even though I think Clemson and FSU may wax us if we played them this year, I still want to see that game. You know, it's it's frustrating. <laughs> well, it's frustrating that, for the fans as well. Yeah, you get hey, you get to you get to the championship game. You got your shot probably. So uh, or Louisville for that matter. So it, those are the three best teams in the division, and I'd be you know I would probably quit quit all my jobs if one of those three teams didn't win the, the Atlantic Division. But <laughs> um, you can get your shot. I mean, all you got to do is beat Miami at home, and if Miami goes to beat North Carolina and you take care of business elsewhere, it's really not – I mean, I think any of these teams could, could make it in the Coastal and win the division. And we've seen a lot of 6-2 and two teams get to get to the championship game, 5-3 and three teams get to the championship game. So Virginia Tech could have a shot, but all you got to do is 
look at Iowa, Northwestern, and Wisconsin. Look at their schedules last year, and look at their schedules this year. Um, I think Wisconsin has a stretch now where they go at at Michigan State, at Michigan, Ohio State, at Iowa, and Nebraska. I mean, that, they didn't play. They played, you know, Iowa and Nebraska last year, but now they had Michigan, Michigan State, and Ohio State, and some of that is cycling. But you know, like you talk about with scheduling, but they added a ninth game. Uh, I mean, you look at Iowa's schedule this year, Northwestern's schedule this year, significantly more difficult in the conference, uh, and it means you can't just create empty ten-win seasons anymore, which I think is good for the game. It's good for the game, but I, I've kind of always thought the opposite with the nine-game schedule because look look at Iowa. If they win that Big Ten championship game, they're in the playoff, having navigated a easy schedule. Oh, I think Michigan I think Michigan State did us a favor though. Like I don't <laughs> you know 38 nothing would have was was boring enough as it is. I don't 55 nothing would have been worse. So um, it really should have been Ohio State, but they could take care of it at home. Ohio State would have been by far the best matchup for Absolutely. Alabama in the playoffs. So Well, my my wife's an Ohio State fan. She'd kick me in the shins, but they they had a couple too many close games last year, I think, too. Uh, <laughs> they had some teams that had no business on the field with them, keeping up uh, for, for some of that season. Um, so, yeah, we're wrapping things up here. Um, wanted to just kind of finish off with just two quick questions, which is, you know, who's your, who's your pick in the ACC? I know it's probably huh. been the toughest year to come up with, uh, with that. And uh, four-team playoff, if, if you have uh, four in mind of who you think is going to make it in. And, and those two questions may overlap. Uh, a little bit, if uh, if I understand sure. what some people are thinking about it. Sure. Well, and and I, I like it's part of me because I know I'm not going to pick the coastal winner to win the conference. I'm going to take either Florida State or Clemson, whoever I pick in that division. So part of me wants to take the Hokies because I know that I'm going to pick them to lose in the in the championship game, whether <laughs> I pick North Carolina or Miami or Virginia Tech or even Pitt. Whoever gets there, you're not in your right mind going to pick the upset. I do think North Carolina is the most complete team. I think they're the most complete offense. I think they've got an increasing and, and, and uh, improving defense with Chizik running the show. So it's hard to really pick against. They also get, of course, the, the game with the Hokies at home. So it's, it's, you've got to go North Carolina, but I really do like Virginia Tech. I think they're a really dangerous team, and I think they could easily end up in the championship game. I've got my Andy three. Uh, I'm going Florida State over Clemson. I think the game comes down to Doe Campbell and Tallahassee on October 29th, and I think, you know, Sean McGuire has beaten Clemson and Deshaun Watson at home already once in his career. And all we talk about is how, how the quarterback issue for Florida State is a giant question mark. So even if DeAndre Francois isn't the answer, we've, they've got a quarterback who's already beaten Clemson at home one time in his career. So it's not like he hasn't been there and seen this team and that team and, and understands the gravity and all that stuff. So I just think, I think Florida State's a, a, maybe the most talented team in all of college football. Uh, I think, I think, there's two number fours in the ACC. They're going to be in New York at the end of the year. Um, so I'll take Florida State by a, by a hair over Clemson. But I think that's Clemson's only loss. You look at Clemson's schedule, it's very, very manageable. Uh, and I think Clemson and Florida State are, are both very capable of making the playoffs at, at 13-0 and and 11-1 and because I think Oklahoma is going to lose a couple of games. And I think that as the Big 12 champ with a couple of losses, they won't be in a position to, to be ahead of a one-loss Clemson team. So, I know it's probably out there because the committee is going to try really hard to put four champions in, and I know that's what they're going to try to do. And and maybe a two-loss Pac-12 champion gets in because of the scheduling. Uh, but right now I'm going Big Ten champ, which is Ohio State over Michigan, in my opinion, at the end of the year right now. I got Alabama over LSU and Tennessee in the championship game. So I got Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and Florida State. And as of right now, I think those are the best four teams in, in college football. Wow, so two from the same conference will make the playoff this year is what you're saying. That's pretty 
yeah, it's pretty it, bold. It, it's sort of, it's well, it's sort of, it's it's less a projection of the committee versus a projection of what I'm projecting. If that makes any sense, like if if I'm projecting Clemson to be good enough to be 11 and one, and their only losses on the road to the Florida State team, who I think is potentially undefeated or a champion at, at one loss, who's locked to get in. Um, I, I think the committee, it's going to happen some year where they're going to have to look at it. I don't think the committee will do that, but it doesn't, you know, if I'm a one-person committee and I'm looking at 11-1 Clemson, to me, that's good enough. That, yeah, that's, I mean, Oklahoma was 11-1 last year. Uh, I, I don't need to see more from Deshaun Watson in that offense to think if they're 11-1 and their only loss is at Tallahassee. They're way. I don't. I don't. I think the Big Twelve is way down compared to the national landscape. I don't think Oklahoma's as good as they were last year, and they got smoked by Clemson in, at the line of scrimmage. I don't think there's an elite team in the Pac-12, so I think there's a good chance if you've got two or three lost champions, that a, that a one-loss second-place team will get in. So, I, I know it's a little strange, but I think Clemson's one of the best four teams. No, and I hear you. I mean, they're going to try to do everything they can to to have the four champs, like you said. And it's going to come down to how good Clemson looks, uh, eyeball test, I guess they call it. Uh, and if Florida State and Clemson are kicking butt every week and then they play a game down to the wire, it's certainly a possibility. And if it wasn't for that comeback against Tennessee last year, Oklahoma would have never been in the playoffs. So it's um, it's definitely possible. We'll see how it shakes out. Well, Yeah, uh, like I said, I, I just think the Big 12 is there's, there's more issues there than people think. Like just from an overall talent standpoint, I mean, line of scrimmage is where you win games, and, and Oklahoma, got, it's two losses. It got dominated on the line of scrimmage both times. Well, Braden, uh, really appreciate you, you know, coming on. Um, you know, anything you have going on uh, other than everybody go out and, and if you haven't already, which I, I'm assuming <laughs> most people have, buy the, buy the magazine um, most importantly because it's got amazing content in it. And if you're looking to digest a lot of teams, it's the best way to do it. Um, anything else that you got going on that you'd like to, you know, let people know about? Oh, uh, no, you guys pretty much covered it all. I really appreciate it. Um, the, the kind words are always appreciated. At, uh, at Afraid Go on Twitter, the Cover 2 podcast on iTunes. Give us a rating, even if you hate it. Uh, we want to hear from you. And um, we just started our camp tours on College Sports Nation, which is, of course, the only national college sports channel on, in the country on Sirius XM. And, you know, we got all kinds of teams from every conference that we're, we're, we started and we're underway uh, doing those shows everywhere. So it, camp opens up this week. It's exciting. And, uh, it's time to go, man. So, Absolutely, man. I mean, we can't wait for the football season to get started. I'm just glad camps are starting this week. Uh, we're pumped. And thanks again for coming on, Brandon. Have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, Robbie. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on what Braden had to say. I don't know if you had any last minute or like quick quick hitters. I thought he... He said a lot, a lot of interesting things. I liked what he had to say about Sam Rogers. I thought that was really cool. Um, and just how high he personally is on the Hokies was encouraging. Yeah, I, I think a ton of insight there. I, I love the piece that he talked about, you know, to your point about Sam Rogers, which is unique. I hadn't heard that before. And, you know, I listened to a lot of uh, Braden's stuff um, about him talking to other coaches and them being really high on, on Sam, Sam Rogers. Um, the guy knows his stuff. I mean, that's that's how he won't transition from uh, just you know his position with Athlon Sports uh, that he got back in 2007, and then ended up getting you know the host position 
on College Sports Nation on Sirius XM. Um, I listen to him on both both places because, you know, I think he's down to earth. He's, you know, he's excited about the Hokies, but, you know, he, he also tells it like it is. You know, he sees some road bumps. He's not out there, you know, pegging them as winning the Coastal. He's, you know, being realistic in his expectations. But he takes everything into account from roster. He looks into the talent. You know, I you know you listen to a lot of radio shows and things like that, and you'll hear hear Isaiah Ford come up. You'll hear, um, you know, Trayvon. You'll hear uh, Bucky Hodges come up, but that's kind of it. You know, he he does his digging to figure out what's happening on the O line. Does his digging to understand that Sam's Sam Rogers brings something to the table that is pretty unique in the nation in that fullback slot. So it, it's always great to kind of talk to him. And one of the reasons that we reached out to him, thought he could give some good insight. I, there was a lot of content there, I think. There was. I, I would say that the one thing he confirmed uh, was both of our fears is that he essentially called the game against Pitt a loss. Uh, yeah. In so many words, he was like, that one's going to be tough. That defense, that doesn't lend itself well to the matchup. And we both said that in our schedule breakdown and hopefully things change as, as time goes on, maybe Pitt shows a few weaknesses in the first uh, couple games of the season. But I thought that was interesting and he gave us a good shot against Miami and UNC. So those are going to be crucial coastal matchups for us. And I do think that Miami game is very winnable. The one against UNC on the road is, is much more of a tough task in my opinion. Yeah. And you know, we did not scour the uh, scour the media to find somebody that was starting to get um, you know big on the Hokies. We we've been reaching out to to Braden and had him on our list of people that we wanted to have on the show. I think I sent you an email a while back, um, like months ago, that you know in the future we'd love to get him on. It just so happens that it aligned perfectly. They also just did their ACC um, their ACC overview on um on the cover two podcast just recently it's worth checking out and uh, there's a lot of good insight there on on the acc teams both uh, atlantic and coastal so um great guy a lot of fun to have on and just appreciate it he made it okay so do you want to take a quick beer break and then we'll talk a little bit about just vt football news and a little bit about the upcoming fall camp yeah let's do it okay robbie so what are you drinking over there so I swung by at the store and I picked up uh, a lot six um, double IPA uh, from Evolution Craft Brewing. Uh, for those of you that listen to the podcast, we have the lot three on there, which is just the regular IPA. Uh, it's good. Uh, it's out of Salisbury, Maryland. So kind of a local beer. Um, and I, I like it. It's not as, um, you know, some people actually like the lot three better than the lot six this has got a little bit more hoppy it's a little thicker obviously given it's a double um it's good got good flavor um and it's uh obviously packs a a bit more of a punch than the the lot three but generally a pretty good beer and if you can get it on tap it's um it's an excellent beer they have it in some places at least locally around here i like it a lot i'm having the narragansett lager and it's a right down the middle lager. It's from Rhode Island, and it's been around a long time. Uh, definitely from New England, and they're they're saying is high neighbor. Uh, you've probably seen this on tap around the D.C. area. It's every time I go to another bar, um, I feel like I see it again and again. It's always on tap, so it's definitely coming around. And you could get it at pitchers at a few places in D.C. when I was still living there, but. 
it's in cans all over the place now, and it's called Narragansett Lager. It's it's not like the greatest beer in the world, but it's got more flavor than your Bud Light or Miller Light, and uh, you can you can enjoy it on a hot summer's day. Let's do a little bit of news and notes because there's been a bunch of stuff that happened in just a couple weeks since we did our last schedule breakdown. The Blacksburg Bash happened on uh, the weekend of July 22nd, I believe, and that turned out to be a great day for the Hokies considering the momentum that was leading up to it. We mentioned on our last podcast that people were really souring on our recruiting. Uh, They were mad about the garbage decommit, and obviously we were too, but we did try to stress patience. And on that day, on that Saturday, Tech ended up with four commits, three in the class of 2017. We got a wide receiver, an offensive lineman, and a linebacker. And then we got a 2018 commit in Bryce Thompson, who is an athlete. So I I guess, do you have any thoughts on this? I think pay, our patience or our, our message was was on point. Was was well-timed, I guess. It was probably the best way to characterize it when, you know, the, the moods flipped automatically. It, you know, it, it, recruiting is so finicky. It changes at any time, you know, for – the, the elite conferences that are recruiting in the top 15 every year, it's always a lot more stable. You know, unfortunately, the program we're at, at least at the time that we're at, it's going to be more ups and downs. And the only thing that I do know is there's going to be more of it. Um, I like that we put together a solid event. We got people to commit. And it sounded like a lot of players beyond even just the commits had a blast. Um, and had a really nice time on campus. And I think that, I think for us, without the program recognition as being, you know, a perennial top 20 school, we have to rely on things that are a little bit more touchy feely. Uh, if that's the right way to put it, it's, you know, it's got to be more impactful getting people on campus, showing them why Blacksburg is their new home, talking to them about what we're trying to do with the program. And it sounds like, you know, from from everything that I've read, heard, and obviously from the commitments, yeah, we knocked it out of the park. So in the last bit of recruiting news, we also got a 2019 commit a few days later, Tavion Land, who goes by the nickname Tank. And there's a couple things about this commitment. One, it's a 2019 commit, which is just kind of insane because the kid just finished his freshman year. But he is a 757 kid. He plays for the Thoroughbred team, seven-on-seven seven team, which if you, if anyone who follows tech recruiting knows that that was where Mike London was making his bread and butter with these seven-and-seven-five Thoroughbred kids. And he also goes to the newly revamped Bishop Sullivan High School, whose football program is on this crazy track now. They have a ton of key guys coming up in the next couple of years. And uh, he formerly went to Ocean Lakes, which is a high school that we always had trouble getting in on. So this was Zon Burden's baby, as far as I could tell. And we hired Zon Burden to recruit the 757. And I know this kid is, is years away, but the overall, what, the overall takeaway is that there's an inroad being made. And I, you can't look at this commitment and think of it anything other than progress is the way I'd put it. I 100% agree. It's that, that that was his job. That was our, you know, replacement for the inroads there and I 
you know, I, I think it's positive. Who knows what the kid's going to do? You know, uh, two years from now, you may well see, you know, him head to another program. Um, but, you know, for right now, it shows that we're building relationships. We're, we're starting to really articulate what the program is going to be in the future and the players that we want in it. And it's a, it's a solid pickup. Uh, you know, who knows what it, where it goes. The message, I think, is bigger. And that's what's happening in that Hampton Roads area. Absolutely. I'm, I'm pumped about that. Even if he decommits in a year or two, you know, for right now, when he talks to his teammates, he's talking about going to tech. When he's wearing gear, he's wearing tech gear. You know, th- th- it's, it's a good thing regardless of if he ever sets foot on tech's campus or not. All right, let's talk about the updated roster because that's always one of my favorite things to monitor on Twitter and people going over it and who made good gains and who lost weight or gained weight and all that kind of stuff. And from what I could tell, this training staff, this new weight training staff is doing work. Every defensive end, and this was documented by Chris Coleman on TSL and someone posted it on the key play, every defensive end in our in our roster now is 240 plus. And I, I don't know if you remember, Daddy started at like 218 uh, mm-hmm. years ago. I mean, we've always had some light defensive ends. And now they're all up over 240, which is great for college defensive end. Uh, I saw Seth Dooley was at like 250. Uh, he was already huge. Uh, Hushon Gaines, one of our our freshman uh, standouts, red, redshirt freshman standouts, and who was subsequently caught. But you know, we we talked about the marijuana thing. He he's at a great weight right now, and he was so good in spring. The fact that he is staying dedicated to the program despite being suspended indefinitely, putting on some weight. I, I like to see that. Some other uh, takeaways I'll run down and ask for your thoughts. We got three really big wide receivers now. Devin Wilson coming over the basketball team, packed on some weight. He's up to 206, 6'3. Divine Diablo, true freshman, 6'3, 208. And Eric Kuma, another true freshman, he's 6'2, 210. Those are some big targets. That seems like something that Fuente needed. I expect Diablo to definitely contribute immediately. You wouldn't figure Wilson's going to waste any time in terms of what they're going to try with him because he's uh, age-wise, he's he's ready to contribute. Um, so I thought that was encouraging from the wide receiver aspect. Extremely encouraging, especially it, it wasn't. You know, when, when it's funny, we just got off with with Braden. He's gonna he's gonna talk maybe a little bit about Camp Phillips, and he'll you know talk about Isaiah Ford a little bit. But what Justin Fuente needs to make his offense hum in in his kind of you know tempo style is he needs wide receiver targets and you know so it doesn't look on paper to somebody that's not kind of putting the pieces together like a position of need but it absolutely was and you know you have people packing on i mean what was wilson at he put on like probably 15 pounds or something like that from what he was um you know going into it that that is um you know huge you know Diablo was you know great in, in I think in spring practices I think he's going to only further improve in fall and Kuma is going to be good as well so overall that was an absolute position of need even though you look on paper and you see Hodges Phillips and Ford and then Sam Rogers you know sometimes playing um, you know, whether it's a screen game or whatever the case, you know, it, it, it's a big position of need and a huge jump forward. I think for the program that those guys are committed, they're putting on the appropriate weight. And, and I think there, we're going to see a lot of them in the fall. Some other notes, 
Uh, Tim Settle was down to 328, and if you'll remember, at last last year at some point he was 360 pounds. Uh, so him getting to a more comfortable playing weight is definitely encouraged. I think they'd still want him to get down to about 320 if he could. Um, but that's definitely progress. And we all saw that clip on Twitter of him running down, uh, running down the field inside the, um, the practice facility, chasing someone and pushing them out of bounds. And the whole team was going nuts over it because he was moving. That big boy was really moving. Um, and maybe, maybe his drop in weight has something to do with it. As far as the other defensive lineman, Mahota was down to 264, which he's going to play a defensive end this year. So that's good to see. Woody Barron was up to 280. I think last year he's playing under he's playing under 270, maybe even like 265. Uh, so him being up to 280 is great. Huselkamp, a guy who can contribute at middle linebacker, especially with the departure of Carson Lydon, him being at 222 is is awesome. I I've liked Huselkamp for a number of years. He's always been around 200 pounds, which just isn't going to work for a middle linebacker to get a lot of snaps. If he's 222, 225, 230 going forward, he could really help us out depth-wise at middle linebacker. So I was really pumped to see that. And whether he gained a lot of weight or not, Tremaine Edmonds, our new backer, is 6'5", 236, which is just a massive, long linebacker. I can't wait to see what he'll do this season. He, there's so much excitement around him. I think he... You know, I hope we don't pump him up and then you know end up uh, ending up short of it, but... He could be an absolute monster this year, and I think the you know offenses are going to have to scheme around him. He, I think, is going to be a solid contributor this year. Let me just say one more guy before we, we talk a little bit about positions in general. Yosh Nijman, uh, the guy, came in, replaced Wade Hanson in a number of games last year. As, as I think he did a, a prep year, but regardless, it was his first year in the program. He played well last year. And he was playing at like 270. He's now 300 pounds. He's six foot seven. He could probably carry another 10 to 20 pounds and probably will before it's all said and done. He is just a monster. I, he's another one that on that offensive line, he's going to be our starting left tackle, according to French and a number of others. That, that seems the way it's going. And, and he's going to be a beast. He has the size and athleticism to be great going forward. Yep, absolutely. That, that offensive line is starting while it may not be as deep as we want it to be the our starting five is really starting to come together which you know think back the last four or five years you know when have we when if we really had confidence in in the starting line we had people moving all over the place you know right tackle left tackle um you know it seems like it's starting to come together the depth is a little bit of concern um you know for me i i hope we can kind of uh figure that out especially during fall camp, and uh, we'll see what happens. But right now, things are looking positive. So I put this out on Twitter, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and it's about our defense, and I termed it as breakout players. And I feel that over the last couple years, we've kind of had a drought of the true breakout players. We've had guys like Daddy who – would show flashes and, and daddy even had, you know, a very, uh, an entire, very solid season two years ago, but he never reached that next level. Jason worlds type. This guy's going to the NFL talent. Uh, Kendall clearly, we always knew was going to the NFL, but 
but like Daddy, and even like James Gale, who I thought was our last really big emerging star, all of their careers kind of ended with a whimper. Kendall's was injury-related, so was Daddy's. Um, But regardless, I just feel like there's been a lack of it. I think Clark, uh, Kenna Canham, Woody Barron, those are all awesome players and have the potential to raise their game to another level this year and become a star. But they're already established, solid players. I wanted to talk about guys who are a little bit off the radar, haven't proven too much, and that could break out. I think last year it would have been C.J. Rivas. That was widely considered to be our next great player on defense, uh, next great rover, and he unfortunately had his troubles and had to leave the program. I made a list of guys who I think have that star potential. Um, and, I, and like I said, I left Chuck Clark, Akanem, and Woody off this list. But my number one were, was I made it a, a co-number one, and it was Tremaine and Terrell Edmonds. And we just talked about Tremaine a little bit. But those Edmonds brothers have both shown a lot of potential. And whether Terrell Edmonds ends up playing Rover or he ends up playing uh, field corner, it, it depends, it's going to depend on injuries and how they look in fall camp and what Bud ultimately decides to do. But those two Edmonds brothers, I think, could be absolute stars this year. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, the you know, if if Faison ends up coming back, I wouldn't call that. I mean, he was kind of already a known quantity, and the injuries have me really, really concerned. But he's a highly intelligent guy. I mean, he... I think he's pre he's going through and getting ready to go pre med. I, I mean, he has a good head on his shoulders. It just all comes down to whether the, you know, the actual physical attributes are are back intact after all the injury problems that he's had. But it's got to be Tremaine and it's got to be Terrell that you see this year really making a difference. And you know, call it you know, I I would say having those two on the field, you know, uh, at the same time. If anything, it's going to light those guys up. I mean, you remember we were doing, you know, kick returns with all three of them on the field, how juiced up those guys were afterwards. Right. And, you know, I and, you know, I think that that could be, you know, two people that are really going to jump out and and who knows what's going to happen on the defensive line given the amount of of talent that we have at defensive tackle. I mean, <laughs> we th- we think it's a known quantity, but those guys are all chasing each other's job right now. Um, and I think that could be really, really an accelerator for, for the business or for the position. And you, you mentioned, mentioned Woody Barron, but you know, who knows? I mean, we're probably what, you know, three deep at that position of people that are at least getting ready to, to start, whether it be next year, um, or not, but that's exciting. Well, and that's the, where I wanted to go next is that, Behind Termaine and Terrell, who I, I think will both have very good years, the next two highest potentials that I'm seeing is obviously Tim Settle, who we've, we've talked about and everyone wants to see and is everyone's hyped about. So he's obviously number two on my list. But right behind him uh, is Ricky Walker. Uh, he yep. played two years ago. He took a redshirt last year because of our depth at D-tackle. But he is going to play and play a lot. Whether Nigel becomes the starter, Nigel Williams, at next to Woody Barron, Walker is going to play a lot, and Settle is going to be in that rotation. And it's going to be interesting to see between Walker and Settle and Nigel who who complements Barron the best, who ends up the most snaps, who's in on which situations. But I think both Walker and Settle can make plays, and whoever makes the most plays will have that that star, you know, 
designation on his back at the end of the year. Yeah. And at the very least, you have very capable people, you know, spelling and giving breathing time to your defensive line. I mean, that in and of itself could just wreak havoc on the center of an offensive front is having, you know, four or five guys that can rotate in and out. And granted, you're going to have your one and your two that are the best. But if you can rotate in fresh bodies on that, that could be extremely dangerous. So the next guy on my list was Adonis Alexander and I have Mook right behind him. Those are you know, obviously two guys that are going to play corner. Mook looks like the starting nickel right now. Adonis, we don't know whether he's going to end up at Rover where he played last year or if they're going to move him to field corner. I think that's something that's still going to play out this fall. It's something to watch. But clearly we thought Adonis was awesome last year. He showed amazing closing speed on so many of the plays that he made. Um, he, he lets guys get behind him a little bit. He'll lose his guy here and there. So I'm a little bit more worried about him at corner. I, I think I'd rather see Terrell at corner. But Mook and him are definitely candidates to break out, along with Hushan Gaines, who I, who I said earlier. Yep, hundred percent agree on that front. That's those those are the next ones I would have in line at that at that position. All right, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give three long shots, and then two honorable mentions. So these are my long shots for stars next year. Trevon Hill, kid from the seven five seven, gonna play defensive end. Showed a lot to Bud in spring. Had a, a bad injury right when he was getting to Tech, uh, a knee injury. So he seemed back, seems healthy. He's two forty. And even though he's a redshirt freshman, I think he can contribute this year. I like the attitude of what I've heard about Trayvon Hill. Anthony Chagag, who's going to play our whip and will definitely be in on a lot of pro sets and might even play some nickel too if, if Mook's not on the field. And it depends. It's, it's so hard to know what offenses are doing because there's so many wide receivers. So Chagag will mostly be in there on, on running and I-formation type sets, but... I think he's got safety-like playmaking ability. I think he can cover some wideouts, definitely cover some tight ends. I like Anthony Chagag's athleticism. I think he could be a good player for us. And Seth Dooley, I mean, he's played a lot. He was our top backup last year, defensive end. He's really big. He's never gotten that starting playing time, and he's going to have a shot this year. He had to sit out spring with the shoulder injury, but Seth Dooley is another guy. I didn't have him as high because he's already shown us a lot. Uh, but he's definitely a guy who could break out as a star. My two honorable mentions are guys that you'd really have to be inside the program to know these guys, I feel like, but Raymond Miner, highly ranked four-star linebacking recruit, has some good weight on him. It's never seemed to click for him, but he's a redshirt junior. Sometimes that's the year the light comes on. And the other guy was Jamion Moss, a kid uh, not super highly recruited, but I know Bud thought highly of him. I know he's athletic. We'll see if he can contribute at linebacker as well. And we need linebackers to step up. So that's why I put these two guys at, at honorable mention, Miner and Moss. Did you have any guys? I, I covered about half the roster and what I just named. But I think you covered almost the whole <laughs> defensive roster. You got through the whole I, – my I, I wouldn't go with an honorable mention. My biggest question going into the year is what the hell is going to happen with Greg Stroman? I, you know, he's, that's a good question. It, it, I, don't, I don't know – we all have preconceived notions of him last year just giving getting burnt on a lot of you know pass plays the and, ECU game yeah and you know he was he was younger at the time let's see what an age you know a year of maturity does um under kind of a new 
reinvigorated defense. Um, and even a new coach, too, at the defensive yeah. backs, you know? Right. So I, I kind of want to see what happens there and where we plug him. He's a smallish guy, which makes it difficult in its own right. But, um, you know, that, that's my biggest question mark um, is really him and what's going to happen, you know, with the linebackers. Because I think that's... You know, the defensive ends, I think we'll figure it out. Our defensive tackle spot is solidified. You know, can the linebackers turn it around and get back to the old days? And I think they can. I think we have the talent, too. And how are we going to plug a couple holes that we have in the backfield? You know, that's that's what I'm going in thinking about. And if people can step up in those positions, I think we're we're in great shape. Okay, we're getting a little long on the podcast, so... I'm going to hit these last two points quickly with regard to fall camp. And you're only as good as your offensive and defensive lines. I'd say those are two of our strengths going into this year. I think we we just mentioned it. I, I know you agree. We finally have depth on both of those lines. The only weakness being a little bit on the defensive end, but we've got a lot of young talent that, that is either a red shirt freshman or older at, at that defensive end position. So even though we're a little bit light there, there's depth across both of those lines. And as offensively, it's pretty much set in stone. The middle three, everyone seems convinced it's going to be Teller at left guard, Gallo at, at center, and then Augie Conti, who has a ton of starts under his belt at right guard. French seemed to indicate that Osterlaw was playing better at the end of last year and that he'll be the starting right guard. That will be something to watch for in camp. But ultimately, you've got... You're going to have Josh Nijman on the left, a left tackle. You're going to have John McLaughlin at right tackle, who, while has never taken that next step, has always been solid. How are you feeling about this offensive line? I feel I feel good. Um, I mean, we bring back a ton of experience. I mean, our O line is is up there in the nation in terms of number of kind of starts and plays that are, that are coming back. My my question is just comes down to I mean you talk about the snake bitten offense that we had you know two years ago it's just you know what happens if things start to break down and what do we what do we have behind? our starting five I feel great about I I feel like that could be an absolute strength of this team um, behind them it's it's guys that have had to kind of wait their turn um, in in my mind um, but I I don't see that as a fundamental. Um, concern going into this season. I think the concerns for me are are more on QB and then a couple of defensive positions. I, that's not one in depth at wide receiver. That O line doesn't doesn't you know bubble to the top. That's like you know number five or six or seven on the list. Yeah, we brought in the JUCO more. Tyrell Smith is in the program. I'm naming some of the other tackles. With Osterlaw or Conti backing up the two guard positions, we're good there. Um, and there's a handful of other guys. I'm not going to go into all the names, but this offensive line depth is better than it's been in a number of years. And that starting five, like you said, it seems rock solid. Let's let's hope to avoid injuries. But I love that starting five, whether it be Conti or Osterla, that a starting five is going to be very good. Defensive line-wise, we talked about the tackles. Uh, I'll just add in Steve Zobchak's name because I think he deserves a mention. He was great uh, last camp and last spring the prior spring, um, and he's dropped a little bit of weight too, So, and he needed to. He, he was kind of like a bowling ball out there before, but he played well uh, two springs ago. I think it's going to be Nigel starting initially next to Woody Barron. 
but we'll see a ton of Walker and a little bit less of Settle. That's my prediction. Settle will be in there, and if he ever gets a sack, I think our fans are just going to lose their minds, <laughs> me included. I can't yeah. wait to see it. Um, and might I, destroy the body on the other side, <laughs> right? And when, and when Woody's gone, and it's and it's uh, Settle and Walker just starting right there in the middle because Nigel and Woody are both going to be seniors. It, it's going to be exciting. I just can't wait to see this rotation of defensive line players. And Mahota and Dooley, they're a little bit more question marks on the outside, but Mahota is a violent player, and I like his potential at defensive end opposite of Canham as well as Dooley's. Uh, Dooley's a little bit more of the proven commodity, but Mahota has shown flashes of just, uh, I think French put it, a, a bull in a china shop. So so we'll see how the defensive end thing, of all the positions on the offensive-defense line, defensive end is playing... Ken is Ken Canham is solid, but whoever's going to play opposite Ken Canham, that is the question mark, really. Yeah. Otherwise, the two lines are looking as good as they've looked in combination in years. And you have two people battling for that opposite spot to Canham, so that's that's a nice spot to be in. It's bad when you got one guy and you're hoping he's going to be good, and then you got a soft backup. So, yeah, they're going to put the best the best one of the two out on the field. Um, and, and that gives me a little bit more confidence on that front. Last thing I want to talk about is the running backs and whether we're going to have a rotation or not. And no, that is not Shane Beamer's music you're hearing. <laughs> that, that it, I think it's I think that McMillan is the clear starter. I, I more want to talk about who will get the most carries behind him, but I will say Fuente has been very gamey on how he views McMillan. He's said, quote unquote, we have a lot of work to do with the running back position. And that's odd to hear about a kid who just broke out and ran for 1100 yards or whatever. in in his first full year starting, he's also said at other times that he, I, I think at ACC media days, he said that Trayvon, he's pleased with Trayvon's progress. So I, I wonder if Fuente is just trying to challenge McMillan because he knows he can be great. And that's why he's he's not granting him anything, and that that that's what my guess is. Yeah, I I think it's that because uh, I noticed the same thing. He was really flaky flaky on him leading up to ACC media days, and then during ACC media days, started to be a lot more confident in in McMillan, which I think came across. Um, and you know maybe he's just trying to pump him up for fall camp or or whatever the case may be. I, I think he's going to run multiple you know multiple running backs at the end of the day and I think he's setting up to not have you know a huge backlash when he does so and because you have a lot of talent on this roster at running back and you also have different types of talent um, in terms of the way that they they run um, the ball so I think part of it is prepping people to see a primary running back and then somebody that he brings in for different play calling. I mean, if anything, we know Fuente is an offensive, you know, you know, I'm not going to call him a genius, but he is, you know, a guru at at putting out offenses that oftentimes confuse the defense on the other side and opponents that are, you know, have better talent and are better than 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 they are. So, I think that's part of it is he's he wants a second running back 
to not have necessarily the same skill set or the same running attitude um, that can mix things up for for certain play calling. Okay, so let me phrase the question to you like this then. Who gets the most touches next year? And I'm going to name four different running backs. Because we have, for once, we have a lot of able, seemingly very capable bodies at running back, including Deshaun McLeese, a guy who we haven't seen yet, but is getting rave reviews in practice. Well, then you're going to love my answer. Okay. Here, here we go. So it's McLeese, Rogers, Shai McKenzie, or Marshawn Williams. Who gets the most touches of those four players? Touches. Behind. behind not carries, touches. Touches? McMillan wow. will be one, but I'm saying yeah, McLeese, Rodgers, McKenzie, or Williams. So touches including pass, right? Including catches, so, yes. Uh, that makes it a lot harder. Um, I was going to say in terms of carries, it'll be McLeese. And in terms of you know touches... I think it'll be Sam Rogers. I think that Fuente's offense, although he's going to play a huge role in the blocking game, and that's going to be a key part of um, you know his Rogers you know addition to the team this year. I, I, I think it'll be probably Sam Rogers because of the offense that he runs, and in terms of carries, obviously it's going to be it's going to go McMillan McLeese. Interesting. I'm really curious as to what Shai McKenzie and Marshawn Williams end up contributing. And and a little bit of that's a sad story because those guys were so good so early and they both suffered devastating knee injuries. I'm not sure how much we'll even see Williams on the field, period. I threw his name in there because of what he's done. And, and he was one of the guys listed as losing some weight, getting down to about 225, well, much better playing weight for him, but still enormous for a running back. Uh, and McKenzie, I mean, I love McKenzie. I have loved him, uh, but he hasn't played a full season in like four years, including high school. So Rodgers and McLeese are, are definitely going to – it's going to be McMillan, McLeese, and Rodgers in some order of you know touches. I like. I even like McLeese coming out of the backfield catching balls. I, I think that could happen a fair amount. And He's I'm, shifty, and people are really high on his – how. His fast, his shiftiness, like he, he is, he brings something that is very unique um, to, I think, to that position. And I need to mention the leading spring game rusher, DJ Reed. <laughs> and I also need to mention a guy who scored a touchdown that day was Coleman Fox. I mean, Coleman Fox to me is another hybrid guy who could catch a lot of balls and rush the ball. But I, I mean, I think I just named seven different players. So. That's a first Mc- in, many t- in, many, in many years. <laughs> I know. But, yeah, exactly. Like, think about all those bodies we could have running the ball. I'm not saying that they all have the same upside or the same home run hitting ability as McMillan, but it's just their bodies. And I think Coleman Fox can do some different things, and we know what Sam Rogers can do. McLeese, McKenzie, and Williams being more of question marks. And DJ Reed, I don't expect to factor in. I see his production in the spring game more of as an anomaly of guys being – nicked up and just giving a guy some carries in a game to for whatever reason. I just don't see DJ Reed ever contributing significantly with all this other talent on the roster. But, hey, we could be surprised. Hopefully Fuente was just challenging McMillan because from what he showed last year, he deserves every opportunity to carry the ball and carry the ball a lot in this offense. 
100% agree. That kid was a stud and did it with you know, half the snaps that he could take on a on a given year. All right. Well, I think we've gone long enough. We had a great guest today on today's podcast, Braden Gall from Athlon Sports. Uh, really good interview. And I'm just pumped. Fall camp starts on Thursday. It's, yeah. It's going to be great, man. I think we're. I think we got to finish up with a, a final beer beer break. I'm pretty sure that's uh, that's got to be on to 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 an episode. Sure. Yeah, we can do that. Why don't you? Why don't you say what you're drinking? Because I'm still polishing off mine. We'll just do three this episode. Right now, I am having the Hop Groove IPA. It's a tropical IPA, about seven and a half percent. South Street Brewery, which we've had on a few times already uh, on the show. They they make some really good IPAs, uh, quite honestly. Uh, they make it um, out of Arlington, Virginia, and um, they, I think they do the Hop Gothic. Um, they do a, a few of them, and this was one of their new kind of releases. A little late, maybe I'm late just buying it. Uh, that's got a little bit more pineapple. Um, it's it's a nice kind of it's not, it's not as good as kind of you know your Ballast Point. Uh, pineapple IPA that they just came out with um, or the watermelon Dorado that are all great for summer, but it is a little bit lighter with uh, still good uh, alcohol content to it. I like it a lot. It's actually pretty delicious. Yeah. I'm since it's only about four forty-five on Monday, I hadn't uh, exactly decided to, fire down a bunch of beers so i only had the one i think i'm gonna keep it at that i got a little bit more work to do today but we had to fit Braden into our uh our workday schedule and and we were happy to do it and on next episode we'll be sure to get a little bit more drunk for you yeah. <laughs> make a make the the takes just that much more piping hot but uh <laughs> but for today i had to cool off the drinking just a little bit uh we want to thank everyone who listened to the podcast uh it's a little bit long so if you made it to the end as always, much appreciated. Find us on Twitter. We're at 2DVT. It's uh, the Gmail address for any questions or comments you have is 2DVT at gmail.com. And if you want to throw us a review on iTunes, we would very much appreciate it. We've gotten some good ones. And uh, whether it's good or bad, we'd, we'd like to hear what you have to say. So uh, subscribe on iTunes. Write us a review on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher, Google Play, all the main places. So, Robbie, if you don't have any final thoughts. Season's almost upon us. We're getting excited. We got, what, five and a half weeks left? Pretty juiced up. It's getting close. It's getting close. And until our next episode, when we'll likely be previewing that season. Go Hokies.